0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We'll be considering today verses 8 through 18. Daniel 3, verses 8 through 18. That time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king O Nebuchadnezzar we are not careful to answer thee in this matter if it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand O king but if not Be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. It is not easy to follow the Lord, to walk in his commandments when we face very extreme and severe consequences for doing so. When there hangs over our head, as it were, the dread warning that obedience to Jesus Christ will bring swift judgment, we are forced at that point in time to consider at what cost will we follow Jesus and his truth in loving obedience. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ? A question we must all ask. Christians around the world, certainly more than what we presently see in the United States, daily suffer the harshest of consequences because they will not bow the knee to the unlawful commands of rulers, but rather have covenanted with the Lord their God to follow his word regardless of the consequences. Dear ones, no ruler, whether in the family, whether at work, whether at school, whether in the church, Or whether in the state, no ruler has the right to command us to disobey the law of our King, Jesus Christ. And by the same token, we have no right to disobey our King, even when we face the most severe consequences. At such times, we must follow the example of the apostles of old, who said in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Well, this true and inspired account that is before us today details for us what three young men were willing to sacrifice in order to honor, love, and obey the Lord. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. Let us hear their testimony and let us follow their testimony today. Our main points are these. First main point, an envious accusation. Daniel 3, verses 8 through 12. The second main point, a second chance in Daniel 3, 13 through 15. And the third main point, a godly resistance in Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18. So first of all, an envious accusation. Daniel and his three young friends, Shadrach, whose Jewish Hebrew name was Hananiah, Meshach, whose Hebrew name was Mishael, and Abednego, whose Hebrew name was Azariah, had revealed their commitment to follow the Lord over the king back in Daniel chapter 1 when they refused to partake of the king's Food that had been offered to idols, even if there were certain consequences that would follow at that particular point in their lives, but they were willing to count the cost in that situation. They had furthermore revealed their trust in the Lord when their lives were threatened with death, along with all the other wise men uh, in Babylon. by praying that God would reveal unto them the dream that the king had while he slept, and which God did in Daniel chapter 2. But again, they faced death once again, uh, about about to be cut to pieces. But God intervened graciously once again. Now these three faithful believers, these young men, And I pray you, young men, not only we in general, but you, young men, will hear the testimony. We need young men like these three young men to be willing to sacrifice their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. These faithful believers in the one true living God, are brought face to face with their greatest test of loyalty to Christ yet, in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, you recall, had built an enormous golden image, an image either of himself or an image of his God, and commanded the rulers and the officers throughout uh, his entire empire uh, to convene there in Babylon and to bow down at the sound of the music that went forth, to bow down and worship before this image. Which image was really, and the bowing down to this image, was an act of allegiance to the king. It was an act of loyalty uh, to the Babylonian empire. And it was a token of, uh, of unity among many kingdoms within the empire. And so this false worship uh, had many civil consequences and implications as well by what it was saying, not only by way of uh, religious issues, but also by way of civil issues. The king threatened that anyone who refused to do so would be cast into the midst of a burning fire fiery furnace in Daniel 3.6. And so the music played, and we read what happened next in Daniel 3.7. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations and the languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Notice, all the people. All that is except three young faithful men who refused to follow the multitude to do evil. Now we're not told... Where Daniel was when this was going on. But I believe we can safely assume that if he was in Babylon at this time, he would have been standing there with his dear brethren in the faith. He was likely away on some urgent business, inasmuch as he was one of the chief rulers in Babylon, having been appointed to that position by Nebuchadnezzar as we saw in the previous chapter <clears throat> Beginning in verse uh, 8 we read that certain Chaldeans approached the king and accused the three young men of refusing to bow before the king's image in verse 8 Says, wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Uh, That English word accused is really uh, a very polite word to say that they were merely accused. Uh, The Aramaic word uh, that is used here is very strong and means they devoured the Jews. They devoured the Jews. Like wild beasts, they devoured the Jews. <clears throat> they remind the king of his decree in verses 9 through 11, and then they proceed to specifically identify who it was that had not bowed down to the king's image in verse 12. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, that had not done so. They declare to the king. In context, you'll recall that this accusation follows the exaltation of Daniel and his three friends back in the previous chapter after the interpretation of that dream. In verses 48 through 49, then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors of all over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So these accusations follow the exaltation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, along with many uh, scholars, biblical scholars, uh, older ones, more recent ones, believe that this uh, exemplifies envy. Envy on the part of these Chaldeans. Uh, Chaldeans may have referred to um, their ethnic origin. They were Babylonians as, op- uh, as opposed to Jews. But Chaldeans was also a branch of the wise men. And so here we find that, uh, that they were exalted. The, Daniel and his three uh, friends were exalted to high positions uh, over the uh, exaltation, over the exaltation of uh, the, uh, the men Uh, who were uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. And so uh, that may have been what was happening here was uh, envy over the fact that uh, Daniel and his three friends had been exalted. And that may account for the very strong word that's used there that they devoured. They devoured uh, them because they had been promoted to places of honor. Dear ones, we are, we are warned in Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testament, we are warned against envy. In Proverbs 27.4, we read, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Who is able to stand before envy? The idea is no one is able to stand before envy because envy not only is angry, envy seeks the destruction of those against whom they are envious. Jealousy is... Possessive. Jealousy is possessive and selfishly does not want to share what it has with others. It's jealous over what it possesses. Covetousness. Sinfully desires what belongs to others and will not be content until it has it. But envy. Envy not only desires what belongs to others, but goes beyond that to wish, to speak, and to act to destroy others in order to obtain what others have. Mark 15.10, as Jesus stood before Pilate at his trial, We read, for he, that's Pilate, knew that the chief priest had delivered him, delivered Jesus, for envy, out of envy. They not only were covetous, wanting the the fame, the gifts, the ability to teach like Jesus, the, the following that Jesus had, but they were envious they were out to destroy him. They were out to destroy him. That's what envy leads to. It leads to wanting not only to have what someone else has, but to destroy them so that you can have what they have. Whereas, dear one's charity, the Greek word agape, that is the love of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4, envieth not envieth not that is completely contrary to biblical love the love of Jesus Christ to desire the destruction the hurt the harm by way of some personal vendetta against someone that's contrary to charity Daniel had pled for the lives of these very wise men these Chaldeans back in Daniel 2.24 when he said, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> but envy doesn't care what was done on, beha- on be- their behalf to rescue, to save them from death. Envy renders evil for the good done to it. We are warned in the New Testament, dear ones, about devouring one another, becoming like wild beasts in devouring one another so as to destroy one another. And Paul's letter to the Galatians in Galatians 5, verses 14 through 15, notice the contrast between love and and between consuming, devouring one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now we would probably, again, I'm sure, we'd find it repulsive that we couldn't even look upon someone eating another body. Eating, literally, physically eating someone's hand, someone's arm, whatever it may be. It would, we would turn away from that. We'd be so repulsed. But why does Paul use that kind of language when it comes to how we speak about one another? Because it ought to be as repulsive to us as if we were eating them physically. That we speak against them to others. That's how God views. And that's how we should view our speaking against one another, devouring one another as these Chaldeans devoured these three young men who stood for Christ. Dear ones, if we are not seeking counsel from the pastor or a trusted counselor Then I ask, what is our motive in telling others what others have told us or what someone else has done? What is our motive? Is it to build up? Is it to edify? Or is it to devour? Is it to destroy? Note the substance of the Chaldeans' accusation <clears throat> In verse 12 There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego These men o king and these are the three accusations First have not regarded thee Second they serve not thy gods third, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. That is, what is being said, they have not shown respect. They've not regarded thee. They've not shown appreciation, O king, for the care and the exaltation that thou hast given unto them that's come from thee though they were lowly captives and slaves. In fact, the Chaldeans are are saying, you have given them all this, and this is how they repay you. They publicly embarrass you, O king. Second accusation, they serve not thy gods. This accusation strikes at the fact that uh, uh, the Chaldeans are saying they cannot be trusted because they serve not the gods of Babylon, but one God alone, Jehovah God. That's all they serve. They accept not the religion of Babylon. They scorn the religion of Babylon. Though so Nebuchadnezzar himself had previously honored the one true living God in Daniel two forty-seven after the dream was revealed and the interpretation given by Daniel, we read, The king answered and said unto Daniel, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal the secret. So though he had previously honored Jehovah, now, worshiping Jehovah alone that very God alone becomes a reason to destroy these young Jewish men. The third accusation nor worship the golden image which Shall has set up. <coughs> this is uh, an accusation that they are their are traitors. They have turned against the king, they've turned against Babylon. You remember, as was said in the previous sermon, but also earlier in this sermon, that the image was a token of allegiance to the king and loyalty to the empire, was a symbol of unity uh, within the Babylonian empire So in not bowing down and worshipping, it was not merely a religious issue, but it was also a way of saying, they betrayed thee, O king. That was, again, the nature of the third accusation brought against them. Our second main point, <clears throat> a second chance in verses 13 through 15. Nebuchadnezzar here goes into another fit of rage, as we have seen him do in earlier in chapter 2, verse 13. Recall there that it says that uh verse 12 actually 2 12 for this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of babylon and so again we see his rage we see his anger uh here in daniel 3 verse 13 And he demands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be immediately brought before him to answer the accusations that have been brought against them. We'll see another instance of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's anger, but uh, I think we can see from these instances that Nebuchadnezzar was an angry man. He was a man that was filled with anger. But I think that to understand his anger, we need to ask the question, why was he an angry man? Well, we also know that Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man. I submit to you that he was an angry man because he was a proud man. A person full of pride, as was Nebuchadnezzar, will also be a person as... Given to anger. Psalm seventy-three, six says, "Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain; violence covereth them as a garment." First, pride. Then violence. When we are filled, durance with anger, it is usually because we have not gotten our way. Plans have not turned out the way that we wanted. Where people have not pleased us in the way we think they should have. And so we express our displeasure by our anger. So the source of that anger is really pride in our lives. We didn't get what we wanted, or he or she failed us, and therefore we're angry. Life, dear ones, and people did not bow down to our desires and therefore were angry. They did not bow down to our plans. They did not bow down to our demands. That's pride. At the root, that is pride within us. Dear ones, let us be quick to confess our anger, but especially let us be quick to note that when we are angry, that the source of that anger is our pride. And let us be quick to confess our pride before God. On the other hand, humility submits itself To the providence of God. And even to spoiled plans and desires. Dreams that we have. Or ways in which people have failed us. Humility submits itself to that under the mighty hand of God. Under God's providence. I want you to know, dear ones, that Jesus Christ is not dangling humility in front of us like a carrot on a stick. Jesus Christ has already purchased humility and peace for us when he died upon the cross. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, humility or meekness, and peace are among the nine fruit that are mentioned in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, which are the DNA, the spiritual DNA, which Christ implants within us, has purchased for us and implants within us. And so we do not have to be chasing around, trying to find humility. He has given it to us. We simply need to, to receive And to thank him for it. And practice what has already been given to us. To put to death the pride that is within us. That we be not like Nebuchadnezzar, a man full of pride and showing forth anger. And let's be clear too. No one can make us angry. Once we begin to say or think a person can make us angry then we have excused ourselves from our own personal responsibility to be humble, to be at peace rather than be angry. We choose to become angry. No one can make us angry. We may be provoked to anger, and the provocation on the part of that person is sin, to provoke to anger, but we do not have to be become angry. We do not have to respond to the provocation. That sinful anger on our part, even when we are provoked to anger, Is yet sin. Let us not try to wiggle our way out of that as well. We're responsible for our anger. We cannot say, but he or she made me angry. No. You're angry because you chose to become angry and sin against God because you don't have to, especially you don't have to as a Christian. Nebuchadnezzar then asked these faithful young men in verse 14, is it true? In other words, are these accusations that have been brought against you, are they true? Did you intentionally refuse to bow before the golden image or did you misunderstand my command and therefore not bow before the image? The king gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here an opportunity to defend themselves. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, being the kind of king that he was and having the kind of raw power that he had, he could have unilaterally, without a second opinion or without uh, an appeal, cast them right on the spot into the fiery furnace, Why did Nebuchadnezzar hesitate at all? Why did he give them an opportunity to defend themselves? We we don't know for sure, but we can perhaps speculate perhaps from his his perspective was uh, out of care, love for Daniel, or because of the interpretation of the dream in the previous chapter or for some affection that he had uh, for not only Daniel but for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But whatever the motivation might have been from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, I believe from God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar hesitated In order that they might bear a faithful testimony before the king and for all history to come, that we might have a faithful testimony, that we might follow in their footsteps. Nebuchadnezzar actually gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a second chance, even in verse 15. The king was willing, in verse 15, the king was willing to go through the whole process once again with all the instruments. If they would simply agree now that if they went through the whole process one more time that they would bow before his image. He promised that they would escape the fiery furnace. Uh, Once again, this seems to indicate... Affection, respect for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. But then Nebuchadnezzar issues a most foolish and bitter challenge to God himself <clears throat> when he says at the, uh, at the end of verse 15, And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? This demonstrates that Nebuchadnezzar, though he had in some way honored God as being a powerful and mighty God, maybe even the supreme God amongst the pantheon of gods, but nevertheless he was yet a pagan who worshipped other gods because he's challenging here the one true living God. And God took up the challenge that Nebuchadnezzar issued when he said, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? God takes up the challenge and says, in effect, I am that God that is able to deliver out of your hands, Nebuchadnezzar. Just as God took up the challenge with the children of Israel in the wilderness, when they asked the question, the unbelieving question, In Psalm 78, 19, yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can God take care of us in the wilderness? Can he provide water? Can he provide uh, food for us in the wilderness? The millions of us that be here in the wilderness? It was a challenge, an unbelieving challenge to God. And God provided He took up the challenge and he provided for them in the wilderness, but he also brought his judgment upon the chief instigators and unbelievers as well by bringing upon them a pestilence and plague. Likewise, in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 42, the Jewish leaders, uh, as Christ hung upon the cross, issued a challenge to Jesus. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest, buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Jesus accepted that challenge, though he didn't come down from the cross, he needed to die. But he accepted the challenge and was raised from the dead three days later. Dear ones, let us not challenge God. Let us pour out our hearts unto him, but let us not challenge God and dare God to be God. It is to tempt the Lord God. That is unbelief on our parts when we do so. God, help us to close our mouths, put our hands over our mouths, and in our hearts to realize such a challenge it's very sinful and wicked and we find that it was unbelievers in the Bible that issued such challenges to the Lord God and if we have done so there's mercy just as uh, just as if we uh, when we devour one another there's mercy with God there's mercy and forgiveness with the Lord And there's mercy when we challenge him in unbelief. If we'll simply cast ourselves upon his mercy and not continue in that sin. Third main point a godly resistance. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. What do they mean by that? We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. What they're saying is that they do not need to answer the king. It was not necessary for them to answer the king. Why wasn't it necessary? (coughs) Because Nebuchadnezzar knew in his heart that their God, Jehovah God, was the one true God to be worshipped as he makes declaration of of the living God in Daniel 2.47. He knew the truth. He knew the truth and was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness according to what Paul says in Romans 1.18. He was turning against the light that he had received from the Lord. And it's always dangerous, dear ones, when we turn against Away from the light that God has given to us. When we determine that we're going to walk contrary to the light, we're going to walk in the opposite direction, we're going to be walking in darkness. Because Nebuchadnezzar was turning against the light, he would not therefore be given more light by way of some lengthy defense at that particular point in time. Dear ones, when we reject God's light, God's truth, God's righteousness, God leaves us in our ignorance and in our rebellion against him. Dear ones, do not reject the light that God has given to you. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And then in verse 17 and following, verses 17 and 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continue, if it be so, that is what they're saying is, if it be so that we are cast into the burning fiery furnace, no matter what you do to us, whatever the consequence, whatever the sacrifice that we must make, We will not worship your golden image. That we will not do. Do to us whatever you will. No amount of second chances, third chances, or whatever chances is going to change our mind. They were standing like Luther at the Council of Worms who said herein I stand I can do no other herein I stand for the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has revealed in his word and I can do no other bring upon me whatever you will papal kingdom against me Luther was saying Whatever you do unto me, I cannot move from this point. I must be faithful to the Lord, my God. They confess, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego confess that God is able to deliver them from any harm in the burning fiery furnace in verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. They acknowledge their faith in in the omnipotence of God, that God is mighty. It's no great task for God to deliver from fire. He created fire. He subdues fire. He raises up fire. It's no, no difficulty at all for God to deliver from fire. They acknowledge that. And so their faith is in the living God, even if they don't know what God is going to do yet. And they don't. Because then they go on to say, but if not, in verse 18, but if he doesn't do so, if he doesn't deliver us from that fiery furnace, we're still not going to bow down. We're still not going to worship this image that you have set up, O king. Actually, at the end of verse 17, interestingly, after they declare to the king, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, Notice, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And so what they are saying is, um, whether we are delivered from the flames, so that the flames do not in any way uh, burn us and, and destroy us or harm or endanger us, or whether we are delivered up to the flames and our outward bodies are destroyed Our souls will escape. Our souls are delivered from Thee, O King. Because we go into the the presence of Jesus Christ. We are delivered either way. Physically, whether we go through the flame, or even if we are not uh, protected in the flame, we are delivered from Thee, O King. Regardless of what God purposes to do with them, they plainly confess that they will not bow down to his image. As I said, they did not know at this point what God was going to do with them, but they did know something, and that was that they could could not deny the Lord by bowing down to this image. Will we love him, serve him, and follow him? into the fiery furnace that we face, whether it's an actual fiery furnace or some other trial, tribulation, affliction, suffering, whatever it may be, will we ourselves love him, serve him, and follow him into the fiery furnace? Job says, after all that he had gone through, an experience in Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay, slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will remain and maintain my known ways before him. <clears throat> Very often, dear ones, it's the but if not situations that we don't know the consequences we we know of the possible consequences but we don't know how it's going to turn out it's those but if not situations that test our faith when we don't know what we may have to suffer for standing for the truth i've seen different people who have been credited for the following statement one among whom is john knox i haven't been able to find the bibliographical reference for this statement but nevertheless it certainly is i believe a very biblical and true statement resistance to tyranny is obedience to god Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. These faithful young men would not bow the knee even under the most extreme pressure to do so. The threat of being burned alive. Not an instantaneous death, um, uh, but nevertheless uh, uh, one that probably is, ranks probably pretty high up there as far as deaths that we would not want to die by, by means of. But they were not even under that type of pressure willing to compromise. Just as I said earlier that no one can make us angry, dear ones, I want to also say no one can force us to sin against God even if they threaten a burning, fiery furnace, no one can force us to sin against God. Again, when we sin, even when we're threatened with judgment, we sin because we choose to sin, not because somebody forced us to sin. As God's children, we can always Desire, will, and do what God commands us to do, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can't use the excuse that we were forced to disobey God. If what is required of us is contrary to the commandments of God, we can still follow the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the consequences. Is Jesus and his truth only precious to us when there are no threats of punishment, when there is no cost for obeying him, when there is no sacrifice for following him? Is that the only time that his truth, that Jesus and his truth are precious to us? ones, ought not Jesus and his truth be precious to us when we must suffer for loving him and obeying him regardless of the cost, whether it means the loss of family, friends, whether it means the loss of a job, whether it means the loss of possessions, or whether it means the loss of our life. If we, dear ones, will not follow Christ in the smaller sacrifices that he presents to us right now, what assurance do we have that we will do so when greater sacrifices are demanded of us? He sends the smaller sacrifices now, dear ones, to build our faith, to trust him, to walk in loving obedience to him. He's preparing us. I don't know what lies ahead for us, or for our children. I'm not a prophet in knowing what will happen next week or next year or something of that nature. But the Lord is calling all of us now to be willing to make sacrifices for Jesus Christ and his truth. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice for our Savior? But our hearts cry out. Our hearts cry out, I am afraid. So was David. Psalm 56.3, what time I am afraid. I will trust in thee. David was afraid. And yet he was the one who slew Goliath. He was the one who slew lions and bears. He was the one who slew many, many Philistines. But he says, "What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee." Friends, we all need courage. We all need a holy boldness because we are all afraid. We're all afraid. And to admit that is simply to be honest. We're all afraid. Courage, dear ones, is not the absence of fear. It is doing by God's grace and through his strength alone what God commands even in the face of of fear. It is not bowing to the fear, but rather bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ over the fear. That holy boldness, dear ones, is not something we're born with. It's not a a temperament. It's not a part of our personality. The The boldness, this holy boldness comes from Jesus. Another grace that he purchased for us. But it comes from Jesus, very practically speaking. It comes from Jesus by way of our spending time daily with him in our secret worship. By spending time in our family worship. By spending time with him in our Weekly Sabbath day worship spending time in the presence of Jesus Christ and his word and being changed and transformed into his image as we grow in understanding more and more his greatness his faithfulness we will grow more and more in trusting in him. We can't trust in somebody, someone we do not believe is able to deliver us and whom we know will deliver us. Whether by taking us through that trial or taking us into the glory of heaven, we can't trust in someone who is weak like us. But as we grow in understanding how great and mighty he is, We can grow in courage. We can grow in a holy boldness. As we close, dear ones, we do not follow Jesus because it is easy to do so or because many do so. We follow the Lord because he is worthy to be followed. He is worthy. He created us. He has provided for us. And he has redeemed us. He is worthy. And so we follow him because he is worthy to be followed. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus because he loved us to the very end even when we were his enemies he loved us and he came to purchase us from the slave market of sin and and condemnation and guilt to purchase us unto himself by way of laying down his own life for us and suffering as no man has ever suffered that we might have everlasting life. David writes in Psalm 1611, but he's actually here speaking of Christ, the messianic portion of this psalm. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's what got Jesus through what he suffered. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And dear ones, that's the comfort. The comfort that Jesus had, that's the comfort that will carry us likewise through when that truth becomes so real to us by faith. that we can draw upon that and endure anything because at thy right hand is fullness of joy and in thy presence there are pleasures forevermore. When that is, again, so deeply buried, so rooted in our lives, we will, like Jesus, be able to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, how we rejoice today that thou has given to us uh, even the example of these three young godly men who were devoted to thee and who were willing to suffer whatever might be brought against them, who were willing to endure whatever pressure was applied unto them, who were willing to cast away second chances in order to be faithful to thee. Lord, uh, what a what a time of rejoicing lord for those who have stood <coughs> faithfully for thee as they enter into that glorious eternal inheritance in heaven and father may that be ever before us that uh, we might be encouraged as we they were encouraged, the three young men, as Jesus was encouraged, as the apostles were encouraged, as all the faithful witnesses and martyrs of Christ have been encouraged because in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Hear our prayer, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.